If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Genesis chapter 19. Uh, you can follow along there. We're going to read most of the chapter. Uh, to start with, uh, we're in the first 11 verses, and, and if you're writing things down, the first thing to write down is simply, uh, God judges the wicked. God judges the wicked. There is judgment waiting for the wicked. There is judgment waiting for those of us who decide to reject God in this life. Uh, so 19 verse 1 starts with the angels who left Abraham. We saw the conversation and the interaction between God and the angels last week. The, Ab- the angels are now in Sodom. They have come to see what's going on. They have gotten to the city. Lot has said, hey, come with me. Lot's at the city gate. That's kind of like the town square. Lot grabs the angels and says, come with me. He makes them this huge feast, very typical of oriental hospitality, very appropriate, very honorable. Uh, and then this is where the story picks up. Uh, I'll start 19, verse 4, and we'll read through 11. Starting in verse 4. Uh, it says, but before they lay down, referencing the angels, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Verse 8, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become our judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house, referencing the angels. Reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. And the angels tell Lot, hey, you got any family here? This place is about to burn. Let's go. And we know that Lot goes to his family and says, come on, let's go. And essentially they laugh at him. Essentially they look at him and say, who's this old guy? You're crazy. We're not going with you. So, so just to recap, the angels show up in Sodom. Lot's there at the front door, a fair and a respectable expression of oriental hospitality. He invites them into his home, gives them a fine meal, invites them to stay the night, intending to send them out quickly in the morning. And after dinner, the men, it says, to the every last one, show up at his door, pounding on the door, send those foreigners out to us. And Lot says, please, please, please don't. He goes out and he stands at the door, right? closes the door behind him, kind of say, if you want them, you're going to have to go through me. And it really seems like Lot is this honorable fellow. And then he turns to deadbeat dad just in a half a verse. He says, I've got these two daughters. Do whatever you want to them. Just leave my guests alone. Leave those under my roof alone. God told Abraham that if there were ten righteous in the city, he would spare it. Did God know how many righteous there were in the city? Did God have a pretty clear sense of how many were righteous in the city? So this search and rescue mission is not for God to say, I wonder, huh, 
I wonder what's going on in there. I wonder if there are any righteous. Maybe there, maybe there are. God knows what he's going to find. The angels know what they're going to find. They're sent there to pull Lot out. They're sent there to show the righteousness and the mercy of God to give this city every last chance. Some of you teach, or, or some of you help with kids here, and, and sometimes uh, with those kids, you'll ask them to do something, and you'll give them every last chance. And so you might say, it's time to go. The service is almost over, if the service is on time, which is <laughs> 50-50 around here. Pick up the blocks, and you might count one, and you give them every last chance. And so you count as slow as you've ever counted in your life. One, two, you pretend to get confused. Two, two and a half, two and three quarters. And you're giving them every last chance because you know they can do it. You want them to do it. And you're just hoping that they come through because you really have no intent or no desire to discipline them. God gives them every last chance showing how righteous he is, how patient he is, and how wholly corrupt the city has become. Verse 4 says, every last man, young and old. So whether that's literal, and there's literally not a male left in the city that's not standing around the house, or figurative in the sense sense that it's just most of them, either way, the details are clear that the city has become wholly corrupted. Wholly corrupted. Uh, You know, as we think about sin, it grows like a weed, right? In Douglas County, we have blackberry bushes everywhere. And some of you have blackberry bushes in areas where you'd like to garden or where you'd like produce to grow. And if you have blackberries where you'd like produce to grow, you have to snip the blackberries when they're really small and do a bunch of other things. If you don't catch them when they're small, what happens? They get bigger. Their footprint gets larger. They encroach on everything. They suffocate everything. And then they become really, really difficult to get rid of. It requires some sort of radical intervention. Sin, if left unchecked in our life, small, small sin that doesn't seem to do damage to anyone or anything, if left unchecked, grows like that weed. And sin is not just wanting to occupy a room in our house uh, like a renter or a tenant or subletting. Sin comes in and wants to take over the whole thing, right? Those blackberry bushes don't just stop when they've devoured your garden. They go everywhere, encroach on everything, suffocate all the good that you hoped to do with that land. It requires a radical intervention. If you're here today and you're feeling like you might be in that spot with something that people know about in your life or something that people don't know about, I would caution you because what the enemy will will try to do is will say, you can do this on your own. It's not that bad yet. You can still redirect the ship. You don't need help. You can do this. You see, as we come to Scripture, it pushes us towards God. It makes us aware of our need for a Savior. The enemy uses our sin to try to establish ourselves as sufficient to meet all of our own needs, that we don't need a Savior, we don't need each other. And so we justify what we do and we belittle and demean what we do. And for those of you that are fishers, it's, it's kind of like getting that hook sunk in the fish. And the fish is swimming so hard to get away. The fish is maybe even thinking it is swimming away. 
not realizing that as hard as it struggles, as hard as it fights, it is slowly getting closer and closer and closer to the boat and is just maybe seconds away uh, from the net or from being grabbed. And some of us, even today, are seconds away uh, from being nabbed, from it being found out, from it exploding in our lives, from the ripple effect becoming exponentially greater, the, the devastation in our life becoming exponentially greater. 1 Corinthians 16 speaks to the, uh, the depravity, the despair, the destruction of, of sexual sin. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'll flip over there quickly. 1 Corinthians 16 uh, says this with regards to sins against the body which is what we see in in Sodom, right? We see uh, homosexuality. We see a deviance far beyond the deviance of normal, godless culture at the time uh, in this sense that they're mobbing these foreigners. I I mean, this this is gang rape. Verse 18 of chapter 16, 1 Corinthians says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 17, Or do you not know that your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So glorify God in your body. Sins against the body hold the potential often for greater despair and destruction because they take something so precious, they take something that God created in his image for his glory to be a temple for his presence and to be a mirror, to be a spotlight, to reflect his glory to our community and it defiles that, it defaces that. Uh, Think about what our kids are probably right doing in the toddler room. Right now, they're probably coloring. And if they color on paper, that's just fine. That's the appropriate place for it. If they color on the wall, it's frustrating and it's annoying, but we can clean that up. If there was a beautiful piece of art, if you had the Mona Lisa back there and the kids got out their crayons and decided to add some color to it, because of the value of that painting, uh, the consequences for what they would do would be much more severe. Our horror of walking in there and seeing what they would have done would have been much greater because what they have ruined, what they have defiled, is of infinitely more valuable, of more value than a piece of paper or maybe some paint on the wall. One of the things I want to guard us against as we consider this text is that um, Lot is picking and choosing when and where he wants to do what is right. Lot is picking and choosing when and where he wants to do what is right. He goes from noble, hospitable, courageous protector of those under his roof, right? He goes from that to deadbeat dad just in a fraction of a second. And so I don't want us to look at the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't want us to look at the sin of Lot and say, ah, they're all disgusting. Ah, I could never, would never. I want us to see that on a daily basis, we pick and choose when and where we want to do what is right, just like Lot is doing 
in this passage. The context is different, the setting is different, the people are different, but on a regular basis we pick and choose when and where we want to do what God has asked us. Some of you have been fruit picking already, and and we went down to Brozai a week or two ago and picked the cherries, and they were beautiful. It was a wonderful time, but when you're picking those cherries, you're looking for gigantic, and you're looking for dark, and when you find those, you just eat them. They don't go into the box, you just eat them. Sometimes you find one that looks dark, uh, and then you turn it around and realize it's still not ripe. Sometimes you pick one that looks great, and you pick it, and you look at it, and you realize, oh, that thing's been pecked all over. That's gross. And you, you toss it to the ground. Or maybe there's bugs on it, and you, you toss it to the ground. And so sometimes we approach God's word with that same uh, careless, subjective attitude. Uh, I'll pick what I want. I'll enjoy what I want. I'll do what I want. I'll follow the instructions that look good. I'll follow the instructions that God gives me that make sense to me. I'll follow the instructions that don't come into too much conflict with the world around me. But the ones that are difficult, the ones that are countercultural, the ones that require some sort of sacrifice, discard those commands of the Lord, like just tossing those cherries back out in the field. I don't like this one. This command looks like it's going to be too difficult for me. This comes really unnatural to me. Toss it back to the ground. Um, I see this in my life, just thinking on, on this topic this week and, and thinking about, uh, you know, for me, maybe the role of, of being a spiritual leader in a home and seeing in my own heart that there's a propensity to think more about how do I lead our family spiritually, whether that be monthly finances or thinking about retirement or kids' college, all these things, that, that there's the desire, there's the propensity to spend more time thinking about how to lead my family spiritually or financially, uh, than what it means to be a spiritual leader and to prioritize eternal things more than temporal things. Think about it with generosity. We're very familiar with the scriptures that talk about generosity and sacrificial generosity, and we have Jesus as this larger-than-life, incredible example. But I see in my heart that I'm, I'm quick to be generous and sacrificial for people that I like, for people that I enjoy, for people that haven't been all that offensive towards me. And for those that have, it just doesn't seem to resonate as much when they're in need. I find myself less willing to sacrifice my time uh, for those people. And we have these great texts that talk about loving your enemies. We have these great texts that talk about giving to those who can't repay you. We have these great texts that just push us into our uh, discomfort and reveal that we are regularly in the habit of picking and choosing when and where we want to do what is right, just just like Lot. I might even pause longer and say, it seems within uh, church dumb, Christian dumb, we have certain sins that bother us infinitely more than others. And again, we're picking and choosing what we want to do, and we're we're elevating the severity of the sins of others and minimizing the severity and the devastation and the offense to God of our own sin. Uh, you turn on the news, you'll see any of them. We could, we could make a list on a thing of which sins are most evil. And if we were all honest, we'd all end with some of the same things at the worst end of the spectrum. Would you consider spiritual pride? Probably most of us don't lay in bed at night worrying about spiritual pride. 
Probably most of us don't go to bed at night thinking, I hope my kids do not succumb to spiritual pride. We pray a lot of things for them. Don't lay in bed worrying, agonizing over whether or not I'm starting to see spiritual pride in their hearts. Uh, Luke 18 is a short parable that Jesus told that shows that it matters to him. Uh, And so it needs to matter to us, even though sometimes it doesn't rank up there as a hot button sin for us. Uh, Listen to what Jesus says in in Luke 18, telling the story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to worship, and he records and he shares with these people what they said. Uh, Verse 11 of chapter 18 in Luke says this. Jesus talking, he says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So this is a pretty bold move. Lord, I thank you that I am not like all these people, especially that guy. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And Jesus comments on what the tax collector says, his posture. He says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't know if there is a more critical or important posture that could be said of us. I don't know if there's a more uh, revelatory posture that shows what's in our heart. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Have you ever looked at someone else's sin and said, that's terrible, I would never do that. Have you ever looked at someone else's sin and felt some sort of relief? I'm definitely better than they are. in some way justifying that you can continue doing what you're doing because of what someone else is doing. Does your own pride bother you? I know everyone else's does. Does your own pride bother you? Does my own pride bother me? I know everyone else's does. I'd suggest that if we were half as concerned with our own sin as we are with other people's sin, all of Douglas County would see Jesus and would like what they see. How about hypocrisy? Turn to Matthew 23. I just want to want to camp here and help us to continue to see that we have this spectacularly wicked portrait of a town. And judgment is coming, but we've got to see it as a warning light to us and a warning light to culture of which we're supposed to be its blessing. Matthew 23, if you have your Bibles open. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees concerning uh, being a hypocrite, saying one thing, doing another, uh, inauthenticity, uh, putting the best light forward. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Remember, these are the religious leaders. These are the most revered people, religious people in the land. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. 
you can read the rest of the chapter. Uh, I'll read verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, he's saying, you tithe off everything you have. You go into the pantry and tithe off your spices. If you get a bonus check at the end of the year, you tithe off your bonus check. If you find 50 cents in the sofa, you give five cents of that 50 cents into the offering. You don't miss a beat. He says, but you have neglected the weightier things, mercy and justice. If the weight of our spiritual focus is on externals, what we do, not what God has done. If the weight of our spiritual focus is on our own willpower to do the things a loving person does, to do the things a Christian does, to do the things someone who has the love of God in their hearts does without the actual love of God in our hearts. Jesus likens that person to someone who shuts the door of hell, who does not enter and keeps others from going in. So where we're called to bless the world, where we're called to make disciples, where we're called to send disciples, Jesus likens this person to someone who stands in front of the door of hell and keeps it shut, locks it, you know, ten deadbolts, and keeps people out, making following Jesus repulsive to culture, heaping such huge burdens on people that they crush themselves and crush others. And so I pause for these two, and, and we could do ten more, but I pause for hypocrisy and spiritual pride because most of us don't lay in bed at night worrying about these things for ourselves and for others. Most of us don't call special prayer meetings and, and get together and come to church begging and pleading and putting little notes on our prayer cards. Pray for spiritual pride. Pray for hypocrisy because we've got these other things that are these big sins and we reveal that we have a pattern of picking and choosing when and where we want to do what is right. Uh, we reveal a lack of attention to our own hearts. We reveal a lack of awareness of the danger of sin, that judgment is coming, that it, it, that it is severe uh, and just. Uh, turn to 2 Peter 2 if you have your Bibles. Today's text is a warning for us. And it was a warning for Israel. So you recall that Israel is going to go into the promised land. Israel is going to go into the promised land and have wicked nations everywhere. And God is going to instruct Israel to go in and to clean out those wicked nations because the promised land is for them. And God is saying, you're going to need to get all of these people out. Otherwise, they will ensnare you and you will worship their gods. Second Peter 2.6 helps us to see that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not just an interesting, maybe weird story. It's not just for the Israelites, it's for us today. Verse 6 of Second Peter 2 says, But if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Isn't that a heavy verse? making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so I, I would say it, it, that as the weight of that sinks in, and that would be something great to go to the Lord with and say, Lord, help me to understand the, the severity of my offense before you, because I'm inclined to not see it as all that offensive. Um, that it changes the way that we looked at our uh, friends and neighbors that might be far from God. It changes the way that we look at it, the, our own sin in our hearts, understanding 
the severity of judgment that comes for those who reject God uh, in this life. Second, let's move, let's move further into in Genesis chapter 19, picking up in verse 15. We see that judgment is coming for the wicked, but we also see that we have a faithful, attentive, responsive, rescuing father who preserves the righteous. Who preserves the righteous. Let's pick up in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Take up your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and the two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set them outside the city, and they brought them out. One said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Lot begs to be sent to a city rather than to hills. They oblige him. And then it says in uh, verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. You can see the angels are up early. Lot, let's go. Some of you go on road trips. Get out of bed early. Let's go. Lot wakes up. He's in a daze. Let's go. And verse 16 says he lingers. Do you see that, that God is pursuing Lot and his family, even though Lot is naive to his danger, even though Lot is apathetic towards his own guilt, even though Lot can't even see what is best for him, and at this point doesn't even seem to want what is best for him. And the Lord still pursues Lot and his family mercifully, clearing a path for them to safety leading them out of the city, setting them out there, going with them out of the city, overcoming Lot and his family's obstinate and hardened hearts. Some might be thinking, let them burn. They want to be there? Let them stay. Uh, look at Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 reminds us that we also are naive to our own danger. We also are apathetic to our own guilt. But we also are unaware of what's best for us and at times don't want what's best for us. Uh, talking about when, when Jesus died for us, uh, verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were saying, let my will be done, this is what I want, Jesus was saying to the Father, let thy will be done. When we were cursing his name, when we were living life like a bunch of kids in a candy store with no adults, eating everything that looks good, ready for the mother of all stomach aches, he was hanging on the cross for our sin. We were blind to our need, naive to our danger, apathetic toward our guilt. The simplicity of his calling today is just come follow me. Isn't it interesting that they drag 
Lot and his family out of the city. They didn't even follow willingly. The call to us is to follow, not to fix everything and then to follow, not to clean up our temper, clean up our anger, clean up our thought life, fix our marriage, fix our kids, fix anyone else that we think somehow we're in the position or have the responsibility to fix. It's not the command to fix and then follow. It's just the command to follow. God does the fixing. We do the following. Lot didn't want to follow. God mercifully and with righteous judgment coming down in fire, drags Lot and his family out of the city. We've got to see that the Lord has a pattern of preserving the righteous. The Lord has a pattern of preserving his own. Uh, let's go back to Second Peter, because it, it, the verse continues referencing Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6 said, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them example for what is going to happen to the ungodly. So they're an example for us, not just a nice story. Verse 7 says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So we, we don't just see in Scripture that we get righteousness from Jesus' life, death, sacrifice, and resurrection before the Father. We see that the Father wants to save us from our sin, and we see that the Father wants to preserve us even in our trials, even when we don't know what's best for us, even at times when we don't want what's best for us. And so do you see the level of attentiveness, of responsiveness, of care, of love, of patience for the Father towards us? What's fascinating is the Christian response on a national and on a global level to tragedy, to sin, to difficulty, uh, to all sorts of ugliness, is rarely to run to it. It's often to point the finger at it, judge it, and run from it. And so we're called to be a blessing to the world. God's given us resources, and we've kind of taken his resources, stuffed them in our pocket, and when the world comes running for those resources, we say, get away. We've been called to bless the world. We've been resourced to bless the world. We spend more time trying to keep ourselves at distance from those God has sent us to bless. No matter how bad something seems, God can bring us out. And praise God, his grace is not dependent upon our ability to self-correct, that at times he just drags us out. It's interesting, though, that Lot's wife looks back. And so we see that we absolutely can reject God's call. We absolutely can say, no, I don't want to have anything to do with you. It seems to be the posture of Lot's wife. He won't force us. It breaks his heart, but he won't force us. Uh, The last point this morning is that the righteous are corruptible. Lot ends this chapter in a mess, a helpless, hapless mess. Like, when you think about where Lot started, there's tremendous potential, right? Lot has seen the power of God when Abraham 
under God's power, came and rescued him from all those kings. Abraham has, or Lot has seen God at work with incredible blessings of provisions. Remember in chapter 13, they had so much stuff, so many animals, so many people, so much stuff that they couldn't even live in the same city. They had to separate. One had to go to west of Roseburg. One had to go to the east of Roseburg. There wasn't enough land for all of the things that God had given to him. We're going to see that now. Lot's in a cave with his two daughters, and everything he owns can fit in that cave. Probably everything that he owns fit on his back. At the end of chapter 19, Lot and his daughters are in the cave. The entire world has become scorched earth around them. The daughters say, we're dead. Our family line is gone. And so they get their father drunk to produce an heir so that the family can live on. Uh, And here's how verse 19 ends. Here are the last few verses, 36, 37, and 8. Thus... Both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, and he's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. How did Lot get here? Sidekick to Abraham, greatest blessing ever put upon anyone ever, witness to God's power, no lack of evidence for who God is or what he can do, and Lot ends up in a cave. And so we're just reminded how fast we can fall. Virtually all we know about Lot and his decision-making is is Genesis 13. And, And remember, Abraham goes to Lot and says, hey, Lot, there's not enough room for both of us. And Abraham, as the elder statesman, says, Lot, pick where you want to go. Look at all this land. And he looks to the Jordan Valley, and he sees that it's watered, that it's green, that it's lush. The Bible says, like the Garden of Eden. And so Lot takes his family, and he goes there. So that's kind of all that we see about his heart, about his decision-making process. We see that Lot took the economically advantageous route, and it destroyed his life. We see that Lot valued the financial well-being of his home more than the spiritual well-being of home, and it destroyed his life. And so a question that that flows out of the text is, what are the longings in your heart? What are the things that stir your affections and your emotions and desires? What are are those things for you? Because the things that we desire reveal who or what we worship. And who or what we worship determines everything about us. Lot saw that there was opportunity and he took it. And through a series of maybe some big, some little decisions, he continued to pursue that. And that undid everything in his home. And he lost his wife, he lost his kids, he lost his family, he lost everything. We've got to ask ourselves, what stirs our affections? What gets us excited? What do we pursue with passion? What do we care about? What has great meaning and great value to us? It's different for all of us. But it reveals who or what we worship. And who or what we worship determines everything about us. Everything about our future. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Uh, I want to end with uh, Luke chapter 17. It's just a passage to, to think on as, as we conclude and respond uh, to the text today. Uh, Luke chapter 17, picking it up at the end, verse 28 says this. says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. 
But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. In verse 32, one sentence, three words. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses it will keep it. Church, what does it look like for us to lose our lives so that we can keep them? What does it look like to be worshipers of the king, not worshipers of ourself? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. We need it. Thank you for your grace to us. We need it. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, we can look back on seasons of our life where you dragged us out, where we didn't know what you were doing, why you were doing it, didn't even like you for it, and in hindsight can see that you were dragging us out. Thank you that you pursue us. Thank you that your mercy continues to pursue us, even when we're naive to our own danger, even when we're apathetic, Lord, to our own guilt. Thank you that you chasing us, you pursuing us, you loving us is based on your worthiness, not our worthiness of it. Lord, would you give us a posture of a church, as a church, Lord, of that tax collector that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, and as we go out into culture, as we go out, Lord, as agents of change, as gospel carriers, of carriers of good news, Lord, help us not to run from the brokenness that we see, but to run to it. Help us not, Lord, to be disgusted and deterred by the evil that we see, but instead be broken with compassion for it. Lord, that the weight of this posture, uh, Lord, of beating our chest, saying, Having, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, would give us great mercy uh, for our world. Lord, we love you for your righteousness. We love you for your mercy towards each of us daily. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.